Thanks, Ken. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 7. Whenever we study the Bible and preach from the Bible, we always need to have the Bible open in front of us to make sure that we agree with what's being said, to interact with it, to be like the Bereans who, when Paul taught them, it says they constantly checked out the Bible to see what he was saying was actually true. So let's read through chapter 7 together. Hopefully you've already read it. You're studying Romans. So it's a good thing to do is to read ahead, to read through the passage that's going to be spoken on. Chapter 7 of Romans. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by a law, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is... It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's word. But I see another law at work in me, 
waging war against... Sorry, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. May God help us understand the reading of his word. If you ask me to speak on a passage of the Bible, I wouldn't have chosen this one. I don't know that many people would. If you were going to share the gospel and think about what's important, But that's why it's really important, isn't it, to teach through a book because this is often a chapter that we can skip over and yet there is so much here for us to learn. Let me put this in context. In World War II, the war went for how long? Six years. It went from 1939 through to 1945. For five years, the outcome of the war was unknown. Who was going to win? On the 6th of June, 1944, a turning point occurred. Who can tell me what happened? It was D-Day, wasn't it? And on that day, a beachhead was established onto mainland Europe that determined the outcome of the war. And yet the war continued for another whole year. There were many battles that were fought. Some were lost, some were won. And it wasn't until V-Day on the 8th of May 1945 that the enemy unconditionally surrendered and the war was won. The war was over. We live in a cosmic battle. The battle of good versus evil, of light versus dark, of God versus Satan. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he was buried and when he rose from the dead, a beachhead was established into Satan's territory that absolutely assured us of the outcome of the war. The kingdom of God had come. It's here now, but the kingdom of God will fully come when Jesus Christ returns and all rebellion will be put down and Jesus' rule will be established over all. So what's this mean for us personally? You've been studying Romans. You've been at it for a few weeks. You'll be at it for a few more weeks. Clearly, though, Romans tells us that there's salvation for all through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's great catch cry, justification by faith. So as we identify with Jesus in his death, his burial and resurrection, he becomes our saviour. This is our D-Day. This is our decision day. As we identify with him, 
This occurred when we accepted Jesus as our Saviour. Ken reminded us of these verses. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. The beachhead has been absolutely established in our lives that assures the outcome of being saved from the actual presence of sin. We have passed from death unto life. But Romans also tells us, doesn't it, that you've been looking at, that we're sinners, that there's no one righteous, that good works can't save us, and we can only be saved if there's a righteousness apart from the law. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're made righteous with God through faith in Jesus. So this is the good news, isn't it? This is the good news of the gospel. This is the fact that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this this is our D-Day. Let me ask you, have you experienced D-Day in your life? Just simple mathematics tells me that there'll be someone here that has heard this many, many times but has never taken the point, taken that decision to follow after Jesus so that they might be Lord and Saviour in their lives. For many of us, I know that that's the case, that D-Day has happened. There has been that absolute transformation that we've passed from death unto life. But secondly, there's V-Day. One day, Jesus will return and take us to be with himself and we'll be with the Lord forever. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. When this perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Make a note of that. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our V-Day. This is Victory Day. It's yet to come. It hasn't come yet. D-Day has and V-Day is coming. It's our great hope, isn't it? And in Romans 8.28 it says, this is the day, the redemption of our bodies. Some of us have been to many funerals over recent months, over recent weeks, even over recent days. And this is the assurity, the hope that we have that even though our loved ones die, another verse can remind us of in, in um, John 11, yet will they live even though they die. If Jesus doesn't come soon, some of us will die. 
and these bodies will die. They're not yet redeemed. And so we live, don't we, between D-Day and V-Day. This is the reality of our experience. And that's what Romans 6, 7 and 8 is talking about. Romans 6, 7 and 8 talks about how we live in the in-between. The first three chapters told about before D-Day. The second three chapters, or three through to five, taught that we know that we can have D-Day, that D-Day has come. But now we live in the reality. And what does that look like as we live between D-Day and V-Day? Ephesians 2 tells us that we are in a battle. It tells us that we need to put on the armour of God. And in this battle, sometimes we gain ground and sometimes we get pushed back. The reality is the power of the enemy has been broken so that we don't have to have sin as our master. And Raph talked about that last week, didn't he? That sin shall no longer have mastery over you, but you've got to be a slave to someone, was his catch cry. And so we become slaves to God, that God is our master and enabling us to move forward. However, that doesn't mean that the battle is easy. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything will go well. We will struggle. We will battle. It will be hard. Life will be difficult. It won't be red and rosy. But we're assured that we will win. Absolutely assured. Even though there's this battle that is going on, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. Paul talking in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 and it's clearly the reality of what this chapter is about. Can I say to you that this is a challenging chapter because it talks to us about the reality of our faith. We can put on plastic smiles. We can say things are fine. We can say I have victory in Jesus. And yes, the reality is that I am a child of God. We're all child of our parents, but how often do we always do what our parents want? How often is everything just smooth and rosy and there's no arguments and there's no issues? We can pretend that the Christian life is easy. There's nothing further from the truth. It is a battle. It is a challenge. We are assured of the outcome. And this chapter helps us to understand how to live and act in relationship particularly to the law. Because the encouraging thing is, is that in between D-Day and V-Day, what's happening? We're being renewed in the image of our Creator. We're maturing in our faith, James says, even though we face trials of many kinds. This is so that we might mature. And Romans 12 tells us that we're being 
transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Philippians 1 and 6 assures us that he who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. So the reality is that D-Day's happened, V-Day's yet to come, and we can be absolutely assured that despite the challenges and the difficulties of that, God will bring us through to completion. Isn't that something that we look forward to with great anticipation? So here in chapter 7, along with chapter 6 and 8, they speak about us growing to become more like Jesus. This is the practice and the experience of the gospel in our lives day to day. Because you see, this good news of D-Day is just seems too good to be true. But it's not. And Paul anticipates his object, his, the objections from his listeners. So Raph looked at it last week. Well, let's keep sinning. We've been saved. Isn't that fantastic? So God's grace has been at work. Let's make God's grace even more active. So we'll just keep on sinning. It won't change the way in which we live because God's doing it all and I'm his child and we're free to live as we please. But clearly that wasn't the message of last week, was it? We're saved to follow after God, to be his slaves. But then we get to this chapter and this chapter is particularly speaking to those believers that know the law. Look at that in verse 1. I'm speaking to those who know the law. So the objection is a saying, well, the law, what's the role of the law in our lives? Why do we need the Bible? What purpose does that do? God saved me. So the law, if it's not, I'm saved by grace, let's get rid of it. It's sinful. It doesn't help us. It's of no value. Let's toss it out. Or the other extreme is, is oh, well, God saved me, but now I've got to live by the rules to work really hard to try and make sure that I keep the law so that I can produce fruit for God. All of a sudden we create a list of rules and we can go the other way and become very legalistic and say this is how we've got to live, this is what we've got to do, this is what we're allowed to do in following after Jesus. And so we have this challenge. But Paul says here we've got to have a right relationship to the law. If you count them up, you might do that now if you don't want to listen to me. How many times is the word law mentioned? I think it's somewhere between, depending on your version, 21 and 24 times. An enormous number. And it's also interesting that he talks about himself, the personal pronoun, at least 40 times. So this is really interesting as a chapter that it talks to us about our relationship and understanding of the law. What are we talking about as the law? We're talking about the law that God gave to Moses. We're talking about the Ten Commandments and Deuteronomy. We're talking about, as it were, God's word. Psalm 1 talks about following after God's law and meditating on it. So we're talking about the law that's been given to us, particularly um, in the Old Testament, um, indeed. But there's 
three things that Paul tells us that we need to think about in terms of understanding the law as we live between D-Day and V-Day. He says there's three things here. The law no longer has authority over us. We're freed from the authority of the law. But two, it still has a role to help us clearly see our sin. And thirdly, it tells us that the law can't change us. It can't help us to do good. It can't help us to sin because indeed our problem is sin, not the law. The law is not the problem. So let's just look at these briefly as we go through. We're freed from the authority of the law. So he uses an illustration here of of marriage, a husband and wife, to show us that the believer has a new relationship to the law because of his union with Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. When a couple's married, they're married for life. If the woman leaves the man and marries another, she commits adultery. But if the husband dies, she's free to remarry because she... uh, she's no longer his wife. Death has broken that marriage relationship and set her free. What's Paul's point? We died to the law when we trusted Christ and we're united to him. But I don't know if you notice, the illustration doesn't seem to stack up because wasn't it the husband who died and not the woman that died in his illustration? If we're represented by the wife and the law is represented by the husband... It doesn't seem to make sense. The wife died. So if she's going to marry again, she's going to have to come back from the dead. That's his exact point. That the law didn't die. It was the wife who died, was risen again so that she could marry someone else. When we trusted God, We died with him, we trusted Jesus, we died with him, were buried with him and were raised again to newness of life. So in that sense, we're now married to Christ. We're united and joined with Christ so that we can follow after him. So the law no longer has authority over us so that we can serve Christ in a new way by the Spirit. And God's word, it says, is now written on our hearts in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, whereas here it talked about, yes, we're not following after the written code. So there's been this change that the law no longer has authority over us because we've died to the law and we've been raised to life with Christ. However, that doesn't mean that the law now has no purpose in our lives. Clearly, it does. And he gives us three things that the role of the law does. First, in verse 7, it tells us that we're sinners. People thought, well, the law is bad, and so it's causing me to sin. But no, says Paul, the law isn't sinful. It can't save us, but he says in verse 7, I wouldn't have known what sin is except through the law. So the only way that we understand and know that we're sinners is because of the law. Romans 3 and verse 20 tells us that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
Romans 4.15 tells us that where there's no law, there is no transgression. And James tells us that the law is a mirror that shows us how dirty we are. Paul uses an example here. He talks about coveting. And he talks about how that, as an inward attitude, reveals our sin. It leads to breaking commandments. Let's think about this. There's a good illustration of coveting. And it's in the New Testament. And it's a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And he's very moral. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, keep the commandments. Don't sin. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. All these, he said, I've kept since I was a child. And Jesus looks at him and says, go and sell everything that you've got and come and follow me. And all of a sudden, that rich young ruler knew that he'd broken the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Because there, he all of a sudden realised that what was more important to him than eternal life was his money. And so it was only because of the law that his sin was revealed. That's how it is for us. As we read God's word, it reveals to us that we're sinners. That's why a lot of people don't want to read it. Because it reveals our sin. Secondly, it arouses sin within us. It's interesting that 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us that the strength of sin is the law. So our sinful nature is going to want to push against the law. You think what happens? Put a sign up and tell people not to go there. Have you ever seen the sign that says, don't enter? And there's a little path that just goes around it. Don't dump rubbish. And there at the base of the sign is rubbish. No vandalism or graffiti. And there the sign is vandalised and has graffiti all over it. Speed limit 60k. And we look down at our odometer to see if we're doing 65 so that, you know, well, that's within the 10%, you know, going over it. So that's okay. The speed camera won't get me. There is something within us, isn't there, when we see the law and we see a sign that arouses the desire to do wrong, to break that law. And in verse 13, it shows us the sinfulness of sin. It just shows us how bad sin really is. You know, we mightn't think that it is, but I don't know. Do you watch those um, police patrol shows on tally and whatnot and see how they pull people up and people say, I wasn't doing anything too bad. Go and catch someone that's doing something really wrong. You know, I might have broken the law, but it wasn't really bad. And yet, as Paul says here, that sin, all sin, leads to death. And the law shows us that the wages of sin is death. And the third thing that Paul tells us about the law here is that our problem's not the law. Our problem 
is sin. The law is holy and righteous and good. It can't change us. It can't make us do good. It can't set us free. But it is holy, righteous and good. And here's the challenging reality. Paul says that this is part of Christian experience. You know, it's not ideal, but it's real. But you've heard it. Victory in Jesus. You know, you shouldn't be living in failure. If you're not loving him and it's just going great and everything's fine and dandy, then there's something wrong with you that you're not really committed to following after Jesus. Have you heard that? And that's a real temptation, isn't it? That we think that coming to Jesus, everything will be okay and we won't have an issue with sinning. Well, we've died to sin. We're now slaves to God. You know what I mean? And I've died to the old man. In Christ, I'm a new creation. Now, that is true. But we live between D-Day and V-Day and we're not going to be rescued from this body until V-Day. And so there's this battle, this challenge within. Sin is still present. We were saved from the penalty of sin at D-Day. We will be saved from the presence of sin at V-Day. But in this time, we've still got sin. The power has been broken, but sin is still within us just because we've got a body here that we say is still going to die and is groaning and wants to be released as Romans chapter 8 tells us. See, some would want to say that this is not the Christian experience. Some would say that this is a person who's yet to become a believer. There's a lot of godly men that do. I had a couple of lecturers at Bible college And one, they had different views on this, that it was before salvation and others had it after. However, the interesting thing is, is that no matter what you might think about that, the person's misery is caused by his indwelling sin and not by the law. But it is interesting. Paul gives us four little couplets here to show that our problem's sin and not the law. The law's spiritual, he says in verse 14. But he says, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Verse 16, he says, I agree the law is good, but on the other hand, it's sin living in me that makes me do what I don't want to do. He says in verse 22, I delight in God's law. The law of sin at work within me is what's causing me to sin. He says, I'm a slave to God's law. But then in verse 25, he says, I'm a slave to the law of sin. It's interesting, I just find that helpful to see that people who don't know Jesus aren't really interested in delighting in God's law, are they? I certainly didn't delight in God's law before I was a follower of Jesus. So we can see there's this dichotomy that is happening within us. We've been given new life in Christ, but the sinful nature, the flesh, has been defeated but hasn't been removed. So there's this ability that God, we have the victory through him through this life, but until Jesus comes at V-Day, it won't be totally dealt with. And so indeed, we've got this problem of sin 
in our daily lives. The law is holy, righteous and good. Christ actually is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfil it. So the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem, he tells these believers here at Rome. The thing to remember though is that the reality of our experience is not telling us that life's really terrible but it's saying it's not as good as it should be. The person who delights in God's law longs to keep it but his inability to do it troubles him greatly. We want to be better Christians, don't we? We want to live holy lives. We don't live in continual defeat, but I don't think anyone here could honestly say that they live in continual victory. That's not our reality, is it? That everything's red and rosy. We do fail. But what's so helpful about this chapter, as we live between D-Day and V-Day, is that it gives us a healthy way as a believer to respond when we do fail. So when we fail, we can say, like Paul in verse 22, I love God's law. I study it, I read it, and as you've been encouraged on the front every morning to read God's word, to reflect on it, we can say we love God's law, but then... When we do sin, verse 15, we can say, I hate what I just did. Verse 24, so, man, I'm wretched, aren't I? But who will help me? And we can respond as in verse 25, thanks be to God, the victory will come through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to lose the battles. We don't want to fail. But when we do... Let this be our response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no pretending that everything's just fine. How are you going? Oh, everything's fantastic. And underneath, you know you've really been struggling with something. No, indeed, Lord, save us from superficiality and from blindness to our failures or a quickness to judge others. I don't judge others. Oh boy, but I think about it a lot in my mind, don't I? We get home, oh man, if that person would only have done this or behaved like this or acted in the way that I acted in the way that I wanted to do, then things would be better. You see, because some people want to teach that you can be perfect. Grappled with this with a young lady just really being exposed through some ministry that came to Melbourne huge meetings in October last year of essentially saying you can follow Jesus and you can become perfect in this life but you see the reality is that the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit's against the flesh so we don't do the things that we want to do We're running a race, Hebrews 12, and it tells us that we've got to put off the sin that entangles us. 
doesn't say that all the sin has gone when we started the race. No, it's saying, well, we're running the race. We've got to keep putting off the sin that entangles us. And 1 John 1.8 says, John writing to believers, if, I, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now it seems to me that Paul here is talking about himself as a follower of Jesus. He uses the personal pronoun over 40 times. And the interesting thing is the little glimpse that we have of before he became a believer was he had no problem with the law. You read Galatians 1.14. I was doing really well. I was advancing in Judaism far better than anyone else and far ahead of my age. Philippians 3 and verse 4 and to 6, he talks about before he became a believer. He says, if you ask me about the law, in regard to my righteousness, I'm faultless. So I don't think this is Paul before he became a believer. He had no issue with the law. In actual fact, anyone that didn't keep it and anyone he thought was against it, he persecuted and had thrown into prison. No, he's talking about the battle within, the battle between the spirit and the flesh. And it's interesting that if we think that we're full of the Holy Spirit and we won't sin, Paul gives the example of Peter and Barnabas in Galatians 2 and 12, two men you couldn't have more full of the Holy Spirit. They're both described that way in Acts. And yet what happened? In regard to the law, they led the Galatians as it were, astray. Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because they weren't eating the right foods. They weren't keeping the Jewish rules. And yet here, even Barnabas was led astray too. And what was the issue? This is Paul talking to Peter. We've put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So the mark of a Christian isn't about being perfect. The mark of a Christian is not perfection, but it's a fight of faith, showing itself in imperfect love by the power of the Spirit and in joyful confidence that God justifies the ungodly by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, by your love for one another, people will know that you are Christians, not by being perfect. And so we live between D-Day and V-Day and Romans 6, 7 and 8 teach us the reality of what it is to live in this battle with the resources provided to us by God to enable us to overcome. Chapter 8, you'll look at that in terms of the power of the Spirit at work within our lives. But as we think 
about this chapter, some questions of reflection. Do we love the law? Do we love God's word? Do we read it? And when we fail, do we hate that failure? Or do we just brush it off and say, that's okay, we'll be able to sort it out a bit later? It wasn't really that bad. Do we cry out in dismay over our sinful condition? Do we look to Christ for his righteousness? Do we fly to the cross? Do we confess and repent of our sin? I want us to stay seated and sing just as we finish. The musicians will come up now. And we're going to sing a song. Take me to the cross where my burden's lifted. And can I ask us that through the power of the Spirit that work within us to think about those questions, to think about the struggles that we might be experiencing, to think about the reality of some of those failures, but to know that we have the victory in and through Jesus. Jesus himself said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross once. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Our daily experience is one of battle, but one that we know the power of Jesus at work within us, that as we confess our sin, that we're made right with him and we continue by our love to show others that we love him.